Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfcforyou.org. Now let's get going. Welcome back to The Upper Room. You're hearing me do an introduction, which must mean it's time for another interview. This is the last of the BFC church leadership, but not the least, right? I hope not. No, it is the last, though. It is the last. It's the final one, unless you want to interview John or somebody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That'd be a good interview. I I should have you do that. Anyways, you are you should know that voice by now. It's it's Scott Kimball. It's he's an elder at BFC. That's the uh, the subject of our interview this on this episode. Elder and now associate pastor. Oh yeah, you got yeah. a promotion. Yeah, Bob and I both. Yeah, you know, what is Bob? He's the associate pastor also. You're just both associate pastors. Mm-hmm. I'm an executive pastor. Bob is our pastor in charge of our caring ministry. Very interesting. Congratulations. I guess. <laughs> Well, uh, I have a list of questions here that you've probably never seen before. Right? I have no idea what's going to be asked. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so never seen these before. We'll, we'll dive in. The first few are kind of a little bit of background about you, get to know you and your history a little bit, and then we'll move into more of the, the church and Christianity kind of related questions. So start this one out real simple. Where were you born? I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, me too. Yeah, right? Um, born in Albuquerque, New Mexico at St. Joseph's Hospital in downtown, which is not where you were born. And um, I didn't grow up in Albuquerque, though. I, I lived in Albuquerque with our fam- with my family until I was first grade, about six years old, I guess. And then our family moved to Tucson, Arizona for one month. It was too hot, so we <laughs> moved to Southern California. And lived there for about three, three and a half years. I was nine when we moved from there and moved up to Spokane, Washington. And um, the reason we were doing all this moving around, my dad at the time was a manager of a shoe store, a Paris uh, Paris Shoes in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was a big Florsheim. Which, if you know anything about men's shoes, Florsheim is a is a big name in men's shoes, fine men's shoes. Mm. And um, dad was. Um, working his way up in retail and doing pretty good at it and had some opportunity to manage and ended up making some list. I'm not exactly sure what the organization was that maintained this list of managers, but dad made the top 100 um, new, I guess, up and coming managers. And so he started getting offers rolling in from other large shoe stores, shoe chains that wanted him to come manage their stores. And so we ended up moving to Arizona and then moving to Southern California um, which we moved, I don't know, three or four different places in Southern California weren't, I don't remember ever actually completing any grades in Southern California. It was like hopping from school to school as we moved around. Wow. And, uh, so when we moved up to Spokane, Washington, I was starting the, I was, let's see, I was finishing the fourth grade, starting the fifth grade. Uh, we moved in February of that year. So I finished out the fourth grade in Spokane and started the fifth grade at another school because we moved again. 
And uh, sounds exhausting. Yeah, it was. And the bad part was, is my education was really behind. So mm. I had to have personal tutors after school and things like that to try to get my reading and math and all that kind of stuff up to speed so I could continue to move along with the kids that were in my grade, which really weren't kids in my grade. My birthday's in October. And for some reason, my parents started me in school um, actually a year earlier than I should have. I should have been the oldest kid in my class. Instead, I was the youngest kid in my ah. class going up. So that had its own challenges, but uh, managed to keep up and, and graduated high school in Spokane. Um, we were Southern Baptist at the time, so we went to um, Southern Baptist Church there called Driscoll Boulevard Baptist Church, which is where I met your mother. And and so our, our family, uh, I've got two younger brothers, Mike and Matt. Mike's three years younger than me, and then Matt's three years younger than him. So we're pretty evenly spaced apart. And no sisters, just <laughs> lots of testosterone in that house, which drove my mom crazy at times. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I remember certain Saturday mornings when uh, she'd be trying to clean the house and we'd be playing, which would generally turn into fighting. And <laughs> and she uh, she would get so angry that she would never actually lash out necessarily and hit us when she was that angry. And so she'd do <laughs> things like bang on the cabinets or stuff like that and scream and, and we'd all freak out and settle down. And, and it was it was pretty effective. So I can't imagine your mom. Yeah. Acting like that. No, not now. I mean, <laughs> she seems like such a sweet old lady now. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she was sweet back then, too. You guys were probably just terrible. We were. We were pretty <laughs> awful. We really were. She used to say all the time, you know, I've, I've had it up to here with boys, you know, and one of you boys had better give me a granddaughter. <laughs> so. Well, there you go. Yep. And you did. That's right. Redeemed myself with Aubrey. So. Yeah, so you kind of covered where you grew up, and you touched on it briefly in there, um, meeting your wife. You were in Spokane. Yeah, so when we moved to Spokane, um, started attending a Southern Baptist church there, and they had a fairly new pastor that, well, actually, I think he came shortly after we got there. They were in search of a pastor when we first moved there, and, and they called up a man who was actually from Mississippi. Oh, and small he, world. Uh, yeah. And uh, fantastic preacher, good man, good family. Um, the church grew under his leadership. And then um, I can't remember if he had a family emergency happen or something, but anyways, ended up leaving the church and going back to Mississippi at some point. And uh, we were without a pastor for a little while. And all the while, um, Deanne's father, Deanne's my wife, her dad ended up supply preaching for a while. And eventually the church called him. And he was the pastor at the church when I was in my teenage years. So I remember more of the things we did while he was pastor than when Benden, the first pastor, was preaching. So, but my dad was really was real active in the church when Benden, he and Benden were very good friends and mm. got along very, very well, which was another one of the reasons why dad was excited about us moving to Mississippi was he, uh, he really liked Benden a lot and they were good friends and dad ended up actually becoming the music minister of the church at one point and went back to community college to learn more about music and singing and all that kind of stuff so he could be a better music minister and hmm. uh, led the music and the singing at the church for an, a number of years and until the uh, arthritis in his lower back and hip got so bad that he, he just couldn't, he couldn't sit. He couldn't sit through church. So 
for a while he stood at the back and then and then he finally I think uh when Benden left his pastor he felt that was a good out for him to to no longer be the music minister and ended up calling another a few other people over the years while I was there to be a music minister at the church and that's how you met your wife and that's how I met my wife I was the president of our youth council of our youth group at the church we had a youth pastor a uh, super nice guy, Dan Riffle was his name, and and he, his wife and his two daughters were um, kind of our youth ministers of the church, and and uh, under his mentorship, I guess I be ended up becoming the president of our youth council at the time, and and began developing some of my leadership skills there, and and Deanne, who was the pastor's youngest daughter, she and I re- actually didn't get along most of our. <laughs> kid years um i thought she was kind of uh i don't know obnoxious yeah obnoxious snotty just i don't know mean (laughs) (laughs) so but when she became my vice president in the youth council she and i actually worked very well together and uh we kind of complimented each other she was more forward and up front and willing to confront whereas i was more work behind the scenes try to make things happen. And uh, so we actually balanced each other out pretty well. And uh, I was going out dating other girls and whatnot at that time. And and I would always go to her with my girl problems and whatnot. And she'd listen to me talk about, you know, what was going on with this girl or that girl. And I valued her advice, you know, and how to handle it and what to do about it. And at uh, some point, I I don't know, it was one in one of these times when I was talking to her and I noticed how well she was listening to me that I, I thought, you know, Deanne's pretty all right. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should uh, ask her out sometime and see what happens. Well, may, not, I don't know, probably not even a week later, Dan Riffle comes up to me and says, Hey Scott, I got a, I got a big uh, favor to ask of you. And I was like, yeah, what? And he says, well, I want you to ask Deanne out. I want you to take Deanne out on a date, you know, her, her girlfriends and whatnot. They're always, you know, going out with different boys and whatnot. And Deanne's kind of the, the one that's left out all the time. I would just take her out to a movie or something. It'd really make her day kind of thing. And so we went out on a date and took her out for pizza and a movie. And, and, uh, when we got back to her house, uh, we sat out in my car in front of her house until, I don't know, probably midnight at least might've been closer to two in the morning or something, just talking. And uh, by the end of that, I just felt this really strong urge or uh, desire that, you know, this, this was the one, this is, this is the one you're going to end up being with. And uh, so I felt really sure of that. And uh, we continued to date for a while and then our family moved away Mm. and uh, dad got a opportunity to go into business with his younger brother, Jim. He's got two younger brothers, Jim and Jack. (laughs) <laughs> and his Gene, Jim, and Jack. Yeah, Gene, Jim, and Jack. Scott, <laughs> Mike, and Matt. Gene, Jim, and Jack. <laughs> he and Jim went into business together in a service master business, which was a janitorial business, um, fire cleanup, restoration type stuff. And so the whole family, we all moved back down to New Mexico, down in Las Cruces, where Jim lived, and started helping to get that business really up and running. What we didn't realize was that. Running a service master business the way service master, the franchise wanted us to run it, could not work in Las Cruces. It would absolutely fail. Hmm. And the reason for that is, is you had so many illegal aliens at the time, uh, Mexicans and whatnot, that lived in Las Cruces that uh, would clean houses and do cleanup and restoration for minimum wage, for dirt 
dirt cheap and we just could not we couldn't compete with that and pay the franchise fees to service right. master to run the business so we were getting killed by local janitorial companies that could undercut us on pretty much every bid so dad did as much as he could running around trying to get local carpet jobs and things like that and so we did a lot of house cleaning stuff but that was mainly just for cash flow uh, meanwhile dad and jim both were trying to work with insurance companies to get insurance work because the insurance companies would pay for us because we were bonded and licensed which a lot of these other janitorial companies were not and have us come in and do these major fire cleanups and so a couple of them i remember doing uh, one house in particular had a big kitchen fire grease fire and the whole house was just had smoke damage everywhere and we literally went around with these specialized sponges that used to wipe the smoke off the walls and the furniture and lamps and all everything in the house to try to get rid of all the smoke residue off everything and uh clean pulled out carpets clean carpets reinstalled carpets i mean just it was a lot of work but uh evidently it paid a lot better and so we did a lot of that kind of stuff but uh so we were living in las cruces i lived down there for about nine months uh worked with my uncle and my cousin and uh, uh we're was doing all right, but I didn't sense that that job was really going anywhere. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I couldn't see me yeah. making a career out of it. And so at some point I just kind of got fed up with not going anywhere that I decided I needed to go back to school. I kind of checked out. We had the university campus right there in Las Cruces. I checked out some of the stuff they had going. They had a waste management program that looked pretty good. Uh, they had a golf, um, what was it? Golf something management. I think my youngest brother, Matt, ended up taking that course. Taking care of golf courses. Yeah. Taking care of golf courses really for managing a pro shop is what it was mm. for. But Matt started out doing that. And then I think got into the, he liked the turf management part of it better. And so got into doing that. But, but anyways, I, none of that really appealed to me, but, but I did like the idea of having a job where I could work outside. So I packed everything up and I moved back up well, actually, I went back up to Spokane for Deanne's graduation from high school, kind of rekindled things with her. She had dumped me at some point during that <laughs> time and started dating some other guy. So I was trying to get her back because I still felt like she was the one that I needed to be with. And so I went to Spokane for her graduation, high school graduation, and we kind of rekindled things. And, and so I came back down, packed up all my stuff and moved back up to Spokane and got a crappy little basement apartment and, <laughs> Got my old job back at Safeway Grocery Stores, and that's that's a funny story in and of itself too. When I left, the management, the manager there, the main the head manager John Felice, told me, Scott, you know, I, I see a good career for you, a good opportunity for you here at Safeway. He says, but you know, if you leave, you know, I, I'm not holding a job for you. You know, you don't have a job if you come back. So be sure if you move, you know, if you leave Spokane, that you're not coming back. And I said, well, you know, I don't have any intention of coming back. I don't plan on coming back. Well, I ended up back. So <laughs> I showed up and I, and I went to John and I said, Hey, John, <laughs> remember what you told me? I'd kind of like to have my job back. And he said, I told you what I told you. You know, there's no job for you. I don't have a job for you. And Spokane was one of those markets where it was really a, a down labor market. You know, if you really had to hustle to find a job there, they weren't easy to come by. And a lot of people worked for minimum wage. And so I, I was really despondent, didn't know what to do. And I was I was leaving the store trying to figure out what my next step was going to be because I needed to get work in order to, you know, to get an apartment and pay rent and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Doing adulting. And uh, and as I was leaving, the assistant manager, Gene, 
uh, he came up to me and said, uh, hey, Scott, hang on a second. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, he pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, uh, John's going on vacation next week. <laughs> Come back. And I said, okay. So sure enough, next week I showed up. Gene handed me an apron and hired me right on the spot and put me back to work. So, <laughs> And actually, it was a promotion. When I left, I was, I was just a box boy, you know, taking people's groceries out and packing groceries and stuff like that and helping around the store where I could. He actually put me in in the frozen food section, and I ended up becoming the assistant manager of the frozen food section and uh, stocking, keeping all that up and everything yeah. and helping other sections where I needed to. So, and, and that was a good job. And, I, you know, I could have stuck it out. I really had I thought that my future was working in the grocery business. I could have done that. But at the same time, Safeway got bought out by a big corporate interest called KR&R, which is a, uh, my understanding is it's a large Mormon owned outfit. And they're one of these hedge fund type things where they go in and buy up businesses and break them up and then sell off all the assets and make a bunch of money. And that's what they did to Safeway. Safeway went from being, I think, the third largest retailer in the world, only behind Sears and JCPenney at the time, to not even being in the top 100 within a matter of a couple of years. And so with that knowledge behind me, I was like, I don't want to be in this industry. I need to get out of here. Right. So I uh, went down to the local community college and got a college catalog and was flipping through it and saw a picture of a guy standing in a stream with a waiting rod in his hand making a stream flow measurement. And I said, that's what I want to do. And that's what you did. (laughs) That's what I did. Yep. Went to college and got an associate's degree in water resources. In the meantime, though, while all that was going on, your mom and I were still dating and she was working... She worked a couple of different little retail jobs and uh, we decided to get married and let's uh, see, I was 20 and she was like 19. I think I turned 21 not too long after that. So we were, we were fairly young Yeah, and uh, got married and got a little apartment um, near the college where she was going to school and uh, I had finished up, was finishing up my associate's degree and was trying to decide whether or not I needed to go on to get my four-year degree in hydrology or try to find a job. And uh, I was applying for jobs and I'd been turned down for several, mainly just because I didn't have any experience and I was Mm -hmm. so young. And uh, one day as we were kind of winding down the semester, one of the professors came in and said, you know, there's a job with the geological survey, but it's in Albany, New York. (laughs) And anybody interested? And nobody raised their hand. And I thought, well, I'm gonna, at least going to find out more about this. So I went up after after class was over and asked him about it. And he gave me the information of the guy I should call. So I called him up. His name was Gary Ferda. He ended up being my boss. And uh, and I called him up and said, hey, you know, I, I'm just getting ready to graduate this program. And I'd really like to get a job. And he said, well, you, I can't pay you. Are you willing to, you know, to make the move to get to New York, to Albany, New York? And I said, uh, yeah, you know, I'll do whatever it takes. And so we got to talking a little bit back and forth. And finally, at some point, he said, I'm not supposed to ask you this, but are you married? And I said, yeah. I said, newly married. You know, we've only been married about six months. He says, "Uh, can your wife type? I said, yeah, she can type. (laughs) I didn't know if she could type or not. I think she could type. (laughs) And he said, said, well, have her send in her application too. And because we're going to need a clerk typist and maybe we'll bring you both on at the same time. Those are different times. Those were really different times. <laughs> and what I didn't realize at the time is both the positions we were getting hired on for were temporary. Ah. So, so there's no guarantee we were going to be permanent employees. Had I known that, I might have thought twice about it, but yeah. I was young and stupid at the time, so I didn't know any better. And so we uh, we told Dee's father, 
who was the pastor of our church and my father-in-law at this point, that we were taking these jobs in New York. And uh, so he, he got out the directory and started looking around to see what Baptist churches were in that area and found one <laughs> and called that pastor and let him know that we were coming and uh, to be on the lookout for us. And thankfully he did. The church put it, did a big send-off party and gave us $800 in cash uh-huh. to help us move. And we packed everything we had into a little five-by-eight U-Haul and a trailer and hauled it behind our little 72 Ford Bronco and drove all the way across the country and landed at the pastor's door. And they took us in that first night. Uh, there was a choir meeting that night. So we got to meet all the folks at the church that night. Turned out there was a family there who had a daughter down in Texas and they were going down to help her do some moving or whatever. And while they were gone, their apartment was going to be available for a month. Hmm. And so we moved into their apartment for the month. Everything was paid for. We didn't have to do anything because it was going to be almost a month before our money started rolling in from our jobs. Right. And uh, when we were totally broke, I think when we got to New York, we had like $20 of that $800 left. <laughs> and so the church took real good care of us. That pastor took real good care of us. As a matter of fact, they took such good care of us that when you were born, your middle name, uh, James, is the name of that pastor, James Gunther. Yeah. And so they, they're still a dear family. We keep in touch a little bit. We're on, he's got a newsletter he puts out, and I send him emails every once in a while. Whenever we are in New York, we try to go by and visit with them a little bit. And they're a very dear couple. Still doing church work. You know, he's planted and started two or three churches up there, Baptist churches. Wow. And uh, still very faithful and actually did a bunch of work down in Brazil, learned Portuguese and uh, helped churches get started down in, in Brazil. Pretty, pretty fantastic stuff. That was the church where I first became a deacon. Well, I'm sure we're going to circle back around to that. The last thing about uh, kind of you and your family and stuff, you mentioned it with my middle name, but once you kind of got established and started a family on your own, like what, what does that look like now? Well, we have three kids. Um, we were in New York for three years, and then we moved to, back to New Mexico to be closer to my mom and dad. And we landed in Albuquerque, took a transfer with the government. And, uh, you know, so I had the same job. I was just working for a different office. And um, you were born first in 93 and then Aubrey in 95 and Braden in 98. And uh, all three of you born in New Mexico. Uh, all three of you born at Loveless Hospital. <laughs> and uh, Same room. No. Yeah, right. No, which was kind of cool, though, because Loveless Hospital was sort of one of these more forward thinking hospitals. Uh, they didn't, they didn't have, I mean, they had a doctor on staff, you know, that was at the hospital, but he wasn't the one doing the deliveries. They had midwives for everything. So, mm-hmm. so your mother saw a midwife through her whole pregnancy. And then when it was time for delivery, it was the midwife in there helping to deliver. And as a matter of fact, when Aubrey was born, she had me get in there and, and help, you know, deliver Aubrey. So that was, you know, that was a neat experience watching all three of you get born. And uh, going through that whole process and raising you guys up until we moved here. So, yeah. So I got three kids, boy, girl, boy. Oldest, Andrew, is married to a lovely wife and has given me a granddaughter. <laughs> and so that's pretty awesome. And my next one down is Aubrey. She's uh, working as a physical therapist assistant in, a, in an assisted living home, an old folks home. And then my youngest is getting ready to graduate from college with his bachelor's degree in uh, software engineering. So we'll see, you know, how life goes from there. So far, so good. Yep. Well, 
I guess it's time to shift gears and kind of uh, go back around to what you touched on earlier, the first church you became a deacon in, but uh, can you tell us how you got started in ministry? Um, well, when you got started when you were young, you were in like youth programs and stuff as like leadership back in the day. Yeah, I, I was, I didn't really consider that the beginning of ministry for me. I mean, I was learning a lot. I was part of part of that growth process, that sanctification. Um, you know, I, I was saved as a really young child. I was like six years old was when we were in California. You mentioned you were saved when, when you were six. Do you consider that to be like your actual, when you think about when you accepted the Lord into your heart, was it then? Yeah. And you grew from there or, because I yeah. know sometimes as kids, it's a little tricky. It is a little tricky and I, I struggled with it. So yeah, I was I was six years old. It was a Sunday school class when we were in a church in California, and uh, the teacher came in and sort of explained just a real simplified version of the gospel. And I struggled with that a lot because I I feel like that was when I actually believed in in God, believed in Christ and His salvation and His His saving work. Obviously, I didn't know everything I know now about the Lord and and what that, you know, walking with the Lord and all that was. Matter of fact, that was the part I probably really struggled with was the sanctification aspect because it always gave me doubt that I was ever actually really saved. But I remember at the age of nine wanting to be baptized after seeing a friend of mine get baptized and the pastor coming over and beginning to talk to me about salvation and going through the gospel and all that. And I remember it being really frustrating mainly because I felt like I was already saved. I had already made that commitment, and he was just wanting me to pray the prayer with him again so that he could be assured that I was actually saved, right? And it, it made me mad, mm-hmm. and it made me angry, and I, I to the point where I was, I remember crying, and I don't know if I actually screamed or yelled at, at this pastor, <laughs> but telling him that, no, that I was saved, and I knew that I was that Jesus was in my heart and that I was, I was born again. And, uh, so he, you know, he finally backed off at that point and I was baptized. And, mm-hmm. but after that, you know, the church I belonged to is a Southern Baptist church. And so we had summer camp and winter camp and you know, all these youth events and whatnot. And they're all very evangelical in nature. And so they always make you doubt your salvation every time. Yeah. And so, you know, I've prayed uh, recommitment prayers. I don't know how many thousands of times over <laughs> and over again, you know, just to be sure. And I was involved in the youth program, and I was always kind of one of the leaders, I guess. And But it kind of came to the point, and it wasn't until right before we moved to New Mexico at Driscoll Boulevard Baptist that um, I really felt like God was calling me into some kind of ministry. I didn't know what. You know, I if he wanted me to be a missionary, he wanted me to be a music leader, he wanted me to, um, he wanted me to become a pastor, he wanted me to you know, work in youth ministry, whatever. I wasn't really sure where it was headed, but I knew that kind of that's where God was kind of dragging me into. And so I talked to my pastor at that time, who was ended up being my father-in-law. <laughs> and because he, his daughter and I were dating at the time, he took an active interest in my <laughs> spiritual uh, upbringing. Smart man. Yeah. So he, he and I counseled together for I don't know how long, and he, he really mentored me through a pretty pretty rough time, you know, being dragged away from the place that I kind of considered home, uh, moving back to New Mexico. And then when I came back to Spokane, he kind of took me back under his wing again. And we began doing lunches together and having Bible study together and, 
And he was the one who recommended that I go through this program, which I, I'm kind of, now that I think back on it, he was probably doing it predominantly for me, but he had a group of men that he wanted to go through a, a deacon, like a preparedness toward a, sort of course, you know, to kind of help us get our minds wrapped around the work of a deacon and what a deacon did in a church and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in the Southern Baptist Church, you just have basically the pastor and you have a bunch of deacons. They don't have elders per se. The pastor is considered the elder. Yeah. And so the the deacons kind of do all the committee chairing and running of the operations of the church and that kind of thing. So it's a little more involved than what you see in scripture. But so I went through that course with the rest of the guys and, and it was really good. And it was a good time of bonding with all these other men in the church. And, and it was a very good experience. But they decided at the last minute not to ordain me as a deacon in that church because I was so young, because I was still only 19 years old. And so when we moved away and then we came back and started going back, to, I started going back to church there again after I moved back to Spokane. Uh, Dee's dad, Walt, told me that, you know, he kind of regretted not going ahead and ordaining me at that time. But, you know, I didn't harbor any ill will or anything. And, and right. uh, he and I were still very, very close, kind of a second father to me. And when we moved to New York, the pastor there, uh, it was a growing church. The church was doing very well. James Gunther, he wanted me to, to be a deacon. And so I, I went ahead and, and worked with the guys there. They ordained me as a deacon. And then I started working within that church. And I was the chairman of the Building and Grounds Committee for a while. <laughs> and and uh, kind of starting down that path of maintenance and taking care of things, which I'd always kind of had sort of a natural knack for anyway, but um, sort of became my my part in, in the church was just kind of taking care of the stuff around the building, keeping the grass cut and keeping all the machinery working and fixing things in the building as they went wrong or contracting with somebody who could. Yeah. So that that's kind of how I got started. It was that calling that I felt that I knew God was wanting me to do something more in the leadership arena within the church. And part of it, you know, on my part is semi-selfish because I, I, I enjoy that kind of fellowship. I enjoy that mentorship, having the ear of the pastor, having the ear of other men who are in leadership. I just find the growth potential there just to be really rewarding. And so it's something every church I've been in since then, I've always been involved in some aspect of church leadership whether it's serving as a deacon for a little while when we moved to New Mexico and you guys were little, your mother and I were the youth pastors of Celebration Baptist Church. Hmm. And so I ran the youth ministry there for a while. And then we moved to First Baptist Rio Rancho and I went back to serving as a deacon there. And, and so I've, you know, kind of been all over the, the map. Did a little bit with music with Celebration, but not too much. I mean, I, I can sing, but I don't have a music background per se. I don't, you know, yeah. the only instruments I ever played was the accordion and the clarinet. So <laughs> we should definitely get you back on the accordion. Mm-hmm. That'd be some good, good content there. Yeah, I can play the organ grinder and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so then now you, uh, you're an associate pastor. You've made it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's kind of a, it's a strange aspect because there's an aspect of it. Where you feel like, yeah, I'm doing what I need to be doing. So yeah, there is that kind of aspect of, yeah, I finally, I finally made it. I finally am where I think I need to be. But then there's that aspect of it that there's a lot of responsibility behind that job and when what you're asked to do by the church. And so it's it's pretty daunting. It's pretty pretty intimidating, really. And uh, which is good. It keeps you humble. So which is really what the job requires more than anything else, because. 
you think of a pastor or an associate pastor as being a leader in the church, but actually that type of leadership is strictly through servant servanthood. It's serving. Yeah, because I sort of function in an executive pastor role, I I do provide some some vision, some direction for the church and things, but it's always out of a sense of what's best for the church, what's best for the pastor, what's best for the people. Right. How can I create something that I think God is leading us into that will have a good outcome for the folks? So do you know or can you describe <laughs> your spiritual gift? Yeah, this was uh, this is that question that every time I listen to you guys discuss it, I, I just like, oh, geez. I know who wrote this. Well, I kind of semi-regret writing that question out. Um, when I wrote that, uh, that question, what I really was trying to get at is, where do you see your niche within the church and the church ministry? Mm-hmm. How has God prepared you for that? And right. where do you see yourself going in that space, I guess? Um, you know, we see in Scripture that, you know, we are all part of the body of Christ, and it and it talks about in Scripture how, you know, some are the ear, some are the eye, some are the, you know, the toe, whatever. You know, we get silly about it sometimes. But the idea being is that we all have different functions, but we all work together to be the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And Scripture tells us in that passage in Romans that I was show, showing you earlier, towards the end of Romans 11 and into Romans 12, it talks about you know, the spirit coming and, and the spirit bringing or giving gifts. And it, and it gives kind of this list of gifts of prophecy and faith and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then Paul talks about it again later in, in Corinthians where he talks about, and he uses the term specifically spiritual gifts, but he's talking mainly in that passage about um, more of the experiential gifts that we don't actually have active anymore, like speaking in tongues and things like that. But he's talking about prophecy being better than any of those. And when we say prophecy, we're not talking about telling the future. We're talking about proclaiming the truth, proclaiming the word. Mm-hmm. And so Pastor Don gets up there and teaches the scripture and proclaims the word of God. He's prophesying. And that that's considered a gift. And right. I, I would say that the way Don teaches the training, the preparation, but also the heart that the Lord has given him to be in the word, to study the word, to faithfully execute teaching the word each Sunday that's a gift. That's something the Holy, that's a work that the Holy Spirit's doing in him. And so I was a little, I guess, disappointed that I didn't ask the question in such a way that I got a good answer from each of the guys that gave it. And most of the guys alluded to, you know, well, we don't talk about gifts much because, you know, that that puffs people up and makes them arrogant and that kind of thing. And yeah, to be honest, I've never seen that. I've never, I've never had somebody say, well, my gift is this, you know, and I'm, so, you know, you stink or whatever, <laughs> you know, that somehow that their gift made them special. But yeah, but I could see that that's always a cautionary thing that you worry about anytime somebody is given a position of power, authority or whatever that, you know, that they can abuse that and, and it can be something that will cause them to become arrogant. But I also believe that being in the body of Christ and being one of God's children, that he won't let you get away with that for too long. God's chastening comes pretty quick to the arrogant. So, yeah. Um, he has a way of bringing you back down to humble ground. So anyways, as far as, as my take or my thought on it, I thought Pastor Don kind of had the initial thought on it, which I kind of agreed with, is that God places us in the body of Christ. And then when I say the body of Christ, I'm talking predominantly about the local church, although there is the larger Christian yeah, body yeah. of Christ. But um, you know, within the local church, each one of us is is placed in there. And it, 
And it's up to us through the guiding of the Holy Spirit to find our niche, to figure out where we belong in this church and, and what our function is and, and how we can best serve the church as a whole. And unfortunately, I think today, because we kind of shun this idea of spiritual gifts, we sort of, we don't talk about it much. We don't, we don't develop it in people. We don't seek it out in people. You know, the scripture tells us to seek the gifts. You know, you're supposed to look for these things. It's not, it's not something you're just kind of supposed to ignore and just go about your business Mm -hmm. with. I mean, the Holy Spirit entered you when you accepted Christ as your savior and he's trying to help and prepare you for service and ministry to be useful within the body of Christ. And if you're ignoring that, that's not good either. Yeah. So you need, you need to have that perspective that, okay, what is it you're trying to develop in me, God? How can I use that within the body of Christ? And it may not be a natural talent that you have, you know, and quite frankly, it's probably not because God has a tendency to stretch you in areas where you think you're weak because that's where God is strong is in our weakness. And so, I think there's an opportunity or a, a chance there that, that we could develop into something that we never thought we had ability in before. And the beauty of that is you have nobody to thank or nobody to give glory to but God in that situation because it wasn't a natural ability of your own. Yeah. It wasn't something you could have done on your own. And the reason I, I asked that question and I, I believe in it so strongly is I saw it so readily after Katrina. Mm-hmm. You know, when Katrina happened and the church really was kind of set back on its heels, there was a lot of people who really stepped up, people who really weren't leaders in the church up to that point, and leadership in the church that ran away, mm-hmm. and people who weren't leaders who stepped up and became leaders because of the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives and through through the the circumstances that we found ourselves in after Katrina. And it was powerful. It was... It was um, a major, a major thing. I, I remember being around some of those campfires and whatnot after in the evenings, after we'd work on people's houses or whatever during the day and just listening to the testimonies of what God was doing in different people's lives as they were participating in this big cleanup mm-hmm. and eventually in the reconstruction after Katrina. And it was, it was powerful. And so I guess to complete my thought on this, God wants to gift us with certain abilities, certain things that he needs us to be able to perform and do within the body of Christ. It may be something you have a natural knack on, it may not, but it's something that he will develop in you that you will be passionate about. You will have this drive to do it and won't understand why unless you know that it's coming from the Holy Spirit, it's coming from God. And I I think it'll also give you a sense of leadership in that area where you will be able to train, mentor, and teach others to do the same thing. I think if we can wrap our heads around that and begin to work in that as, as part of that sanctifying um, process, I think we'll have a stronger church because of it. And I think we'll have a church that will see real growth spiritually, emotionally, mentally, um, making us more like Christ. But uh, I, I feel pretty strongly that it'll actually result in numerical growth as well. More people will be attracted to that and want to come be a part of it. Yeah. Well, you're kind of alluding to the future, uh, talking about that there. What are, what do you think the Lord has in store for your future in ministry, or what are some things that you're excited about looking forward? I'm excited about a lot of the stuff that's going on at church right now. You know, we have a relatively small church. We've got some very talented people in our church, some folks that really are in tune with what God's doing in their lives, and 
because of that, I think we do have a good balance of leadership, but we've also got a good balance of people who are just have a heart to serve. And because of that, I really see a good future for our church, you know, both numerically in, in numbers of people coming to the church, but also in just the spiritual growth of the people that are that are there and willing to come and, and involve themselves in the teaching. And uh, part of that is, is, is we've made a decision as a church to just really focus on teaching the Word, that that is the core of our ministry. It's what we do. Uh, anything else we do outside of that is... Uh, gravy. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's just added on, and there's nothing necessarily, you know, holy or whatever about any of those other activities. They can come and go, start and stop, and that's one of the reasons why we organized our church ministry the way we did by dividing up the church ministry into all these uh, areas, these ministry areas, and by having all these separate ministry areas, we could then focus on each of these areas, and each of the elders has leadership over. Uh, two of the areas, I think, with the exception of Don. Don is strictly focused on the Word. But the other elders each take uh, two of those areas, and and they're charged with trying to come up with ways to advance the church within those areas. So like Bob is music and fellowships, and now he's he's picked up the care ministry, so we're going to have to do a little bit of shuffling around, because that was Jacob's. So we're going to have to do some shuffling. But, you know, as an example, Bob's always done music and and fellowships. And so he's looking, he's always on the, he's always looking to see how the music ministry is going in the church. How could we make it better? What could we do to change things up a little bit, keep it fresh? Um, But at the same time, staying true to some of the tradition and whatnot, you know, that we've had over the years. Uh, Same thing with fellowships. He's always looking for opportunities to, you know, get people together and give them an opportunity to fellowship. Um, when they had their previous house with their pool, you know, during the summer it was Wednesday nights, come on over, we're going to cook up some stuff and enjoy a fellowship and swim in the pool and, and just enjoy a good time together as, as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so each of us has leadership over various of these ministry areas. And so we're poised as a church for good things, for growth. There's something that just needs to kind of kick over hmm. to make that happen. There's a momentum shift that needs to occur. And I'm not sure what exactly what's going to trigger that. You know, it could be this podcasting ministry. I don't know. You know, but we are. You know, we're doing the podcast now. We're we're working towards doing being able to do video mm-hmm. uh, for doing training courses, teaching classes, uh, maybe even doing some you know basic video sessions that aren't necessarily training or teaching, but kind of doing what we're doing with the podcast, where we just you know yeah. have a group of people get together and talk. Um, but you get to see what they're doing, how their, you know, body language is and all that, and not just have a, have it be audio. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we've got on the plate. Uh, one of the visions that we have right now that we're trying to get is this video teaching ministry off the ground. I see that as a big one because the way we can advance teaching of the word is to get it outside of our building. Right. And so if, if we can come up with a set of courses that somebody can take, and be able to learn more about scripture, tie them into some uh, stronger, better teaching. Um, there's a lot of pastors, you know, down here on the coast that don't have any kind of college or seminary background. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, seminary sometimes that we used to joke about calling it cemetery because <laughs> a lot of times it, you know, guys would go in all on fire for the Lord and everything and they come out just beat. You know, they don't, uh, they kind of lose their fire sometimes through all of that. But I think there's, I think there is some value in having some knowledge, 
you know, behind you. Unfortunately, you know, so much of Christianity today has become cultural. Yeah. It's not scriptural anymore. And because cultural Christianity is, is such a big part of our nation's fabric, it's one of the reasons why I think people are so anti-religion, anti-Christianity, you know, we're considered to be bigots and homophobes and xenophobes and, you know, all this kind of horrible nonsense, which is absolute nonsense. You know, none of that is scriptural. And I think if I think if Christians were sticking to scripture and actually focusing on the teaching of the word and living their lives in light of what the word says, I don't think we would have so many of these anti-Christian uh, sentiments within our country. I mean, we're always going to have some because we're a stumbling block to folks. Mm-hmm. You know, the the gospel is a stumbling block. And uh, so anytime you proclaim the gospel, you're going to make somebody mad because you're you're confronting them with their sin and, and people don't like that. Yeah. But I see good things for our church ahead. And I think if we just stay the course and uh, keep doing what we're doing and adding a little here and there, I think we'll eventually see that momentum shift. And, and I think good things will happen for us. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all I have for you. Do you have anything else that you want to say closing this one out? Or do you think you left it all out on the field there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I threw a lot out there. Um, but I think, you know, mainly it's just that, you know, we've got an excellent group of, of leaders in our church, um, not only just the elders, but um, we've got a lot of ladies that are extremely gifted and very talented, um, do a super job with their individual ministries. Um, I think if we can just kind of get everybody moving together and in the same direction, I think we'll build that momentum that we need in order to, to see things really take off. And I think that part of it is, is is the leadership of our church, the group of elders we have now, they're very humble men. They're men who listen to God they study the scriptures, walk and walk with the Lord. And I think they're, they're serious about their faith. And I think because of that, I, I think it's developed a uh, camaraderie, I guess, among the leadership of the church. That's very healthy. Yeah. And we support one another. We lift each other up. Uh, if, you know, if a guy's having a tough time, we let him bow out for a little bit till he can kind of get back on his feet again and come back into the fight. And it's um, it's a good it's a good group. It's a good good leadership in the church. And it's something I think you know any any young man up and coming I think uh, should ex- aspire to be part of it one day. So hint hint. Yeah, <laughs> we got some young men in our church that I think would make really good deacons. And uh, right now we don't really have a deacon ministry because, you know, our church is so small. If we made the men who aren't elders into deacons, I don't think we'd have anybody left, but I think that'd be all right, too. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I guess I just want to thank everybody out there for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please share it, get the word out, spread it, uh, share it on social media. If you can, leave a, a review or a rating on whatever you're listening to or or follow or whatever your app of choice lets you do to keep up with the show and and support it. That helps us a lot. And yeah, with that, just thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church.